Welcome, teacher friend. I'm Lori. And I'm Melissa. We are two literacy educators in Baltimore. We want the best for all kids, and we know you do too. Our district recently adopted a new literacy curriculum, which meant a lot of change for everyone. Lori and I can't wait to keep learning about literacy with you today. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Literacy Podcast. Melissa and Lori love literacy. We are thrilled to have a return guest today, but he also brought a partner with him. So we we can't wait to talk about thinking reading with James and Diane Murphy. James and Diane, welcome to the podcast. Welcome, James and Diane. Thank you. Really nice to be here. Mm, Thank you. James and Diane, do you want to take a minute to introduce yourselves to our listeners? Sure. So uh, I'm James, and uh, uh, as you can hear, my accent is a New Zealand one, but uh, I was born in uh, the UK, (laughs) and after teaching for quite a while in New Zealand, uh, I've been working in the the UK, mostly in London schools. Uh, Both Diane and I have done some work on uh, postgraduate special education learning, And uh, we've used that to develop um, what we do in thinking reading to support schools with um, ensuring that no one leaves school unable to read. And I'm Diane and I'm a Kiwi. Um, My family have been in New Zealand (laughs) from about the 1840s and I came into teaching quite late and I taught uh, primary school for two years And during that time, I discovered that there were um, a couple of children in my class who were really struggling with reading. And um, I was uh, told by my tutor teacher that, um, Diane, you just have to accept that you will always have children who will fail. And I don't think that that is uh, an unusual um, statement. It's something I've certainly heard before. But um, as a result of that, that was the impetus for me to actually go and do some special ed training so that um, I could make sure that I could teach those children because, you know, I firmly believe that as teachers, it's our responsibility to ensure that children can learn to read. And I um, went on from that and um, ended up just mainly teaching literacy and um, set up Uh, a literacy centre in um, New Zealand, and then when we moved to London, um, set up a literacy um, centre in in West London, ran that for three years, and then um, ended up at um, James's school in North London and set up a literacy centre there and did that for another three years. There's a bit of a... Um, a repetition here with the three years, but um, and then after that, um, I left and have spent the last few years um, setting up uh, thinking reading so that we can train other schools um, in effective literacy intervention. That's amazing. We're so grateful for your work, and we can't wait to hear more about it today. And I think one of the things that Melissa and I uh, talked about was really framing this podcast as thinking about how teachers, how educators can use the books in uh, the book, Thinking Reading, in a PLC format. So if I'm a coach thinking about how my teachers might benefit from, you know, reading chapters of this book and then coming together and discussing them, because this 
is a really accessible book. Um, Doug Lamov jotted on your your back cover that it combines passion and pragmatism, um, and I think it's very pragmatic. So uh, we are curious, um, you know, in this book, in writing this book, why did you write it? Uh, what's it for? And how can it be used? We're going to talk about all of those things today. So let's start with, you know, why did you write this book? I guess the main reason is that we have 20% of children who leave secondary school without the minimum reading skills. And, you know, and that, 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 that's a, a crime. And that rate, you know, that doubles to 40% for children from disadvantaged homes. So, you know, there is a, a real need um, to uh, spread the word out there and uh, be able to um, raise consciousness that, um, that this is an issue and that it is a solvable issue and that there is a huge body of research out there that um, is just um, crying out um, to be taught. Uh, I think the other thing uh, is that... Uh Many secondary teachers don't really know where to start. This is an issue that bothers them, but they feel really uh, at sea in terms of where to start. And we wanted to give people a framework to help them kind of navigate through the main points so that they've at least got an overview of what the issues are and what can be done about them. Uh, and, uh, you know, you alluded to um, professional learning earlier, and it's deliberately designed in six short chapters so that if you want to, you can uh, focus on one chapter per session. It takes about half an hour to read each chapter, and that gives you another half an hour for discussion. Yeah, that's a great point. We, you know, I remember when I taught high school, it did seem like teachers didn't quite know what to, I mean, it was my first couple of years of teaching, so I didn't know either, but <laughs> teachers didn't quite know what to do or how to help the struggling readers that came to them. And they were often, you know, confused about what might help them. And um, I, I'm sure Melissa feels the same way, having been a secondary teacher for much longer than me. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that t completely resonated with me when you talked about secondary teachers, because I was trained as a secondary English teacher. And when you encounter students in middle and high school who are struggling with reading, I feel like it often turns to the English teacher, like, oh, <laughs> the English teacher will help this problem. But the English teacher also wasn't trained in how to support students who, I know, are still in need of some skills that they didn't get in elementary school. Um, so, you know, I'm like, I'm ready to teach uh, the Canterbury Tales. <laughs> you know, that's what I was ready for. Um, so same, I didn't receive that training Um either of like, what, what, what do you do? I was ready to teach middle and high school literature. Um, so I, I completely agree that, you know, the, it's, it's definitely a problem <laughs> that, that we see um, here. And I also, I, I, also, I obviously have done my own study since then of what, like what, mm. what can be done. Um, but when I took, I don't, I don't know if you all have the letters training over there, but we have a training um, in more in foundational skills um, and how, you know, really in-depth science of reading, how do you teach those skills? And when I took that training, I was like, why? Like every teacher needs this, not K2 teachers, not just English teachers, like everyone needs to know <laughs> how students learn how to read. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. And I, I'd love to hear from you both. You know, I know chapter one is titled why every teacher needs to know about reading. So would, would you be able to talk a little bit about that? And, um, you have a really impactful story that I know resonated with both Melissa and I, when we read it. And, um, I'm wondering if you might be able to, to share that, share a little snippet, but just share why, you know, that, that particular student resonated with you and, then go on to share what every teacher needs to, why every teacher needs to know about reading. Well, just to preface that too, you know, I think there are a lot of myths around why children um, don't learn to read and uh, that it can um, absolve people of actually taking responsibility for it. But, you know, with this particular student, you know, I, I, I actually taught him um, myself and, you know, he was, you know, a 14-year-old boy and had the reading level of a, of a six-year-old. And um, certainly the assumption was that a child who's been at school by, uh, at secondary school for what, um, for, for two years, um, that what, um, you know, is he actually going to be able to um, learn, learn to read? And, um, you know, there must be something, you know, neurological wrong with him or whatever. And, um, you know, I, I remember bringing him in and, you know, doing a ba- you know, baseline test. And, you know, as, as you've said, um, you know, he broke the mouse. But, you know, that's so understandable. You know, if you have been failing for so long and you're brought into a literacy centre to do some um, testing in an area where you have been failing for years, you are frustrated, you are angry. And, you know, that was a a situation that had to be um, handled very, very carefully. Um, You know, as I say, you know, he was reading at a six-year level and you can imagine what reading material was available to teach somebody of that age but with that uh, reading level. And it's extremely difficult to find, um, you know, to find a suitable reading material. And he was a very, very um, keen football player. So, you know, that was a bit of a hook, really. And the only books that I had that were suitable at that age, there was one that featured, you know, somebody um, playing football. And, you know, so I actually sold it to him. I said, look, you know, I, I know this is probably a bit young, but we need to start you with this. Uh, you know, just just to get you started. And then I showed him some books that were at a higher level and, um, once again, featuring football. And, you know, so that was a, a way to, you know, to hook him in. And, um, you know, we, we'll, we'll talk about, you know, effective intervention later. But, you know, that initial hook in and, you know, making sure that they have um, immediate success is so important. And I think that... Uh what Diane was saying about myths and uh, it's really kind of fortresses in our minds that that lock out these possibilities. So we assume that the student is incapable of things instead of saying, how do we need to change the teaching? And the thinking reading program that Diane's developed is all about adjusting the teaching so that students who are struggling with this are successful from day one. And every time they see that they've made a gain, we make them aware of that, we, we support them with it, we reward them for it in terms of recognition, and, um, and just keep motivating them to keep on moving forward. And it's, it's a, it has to be a very tightly integrated package. 
because you're trying to undo years of uh, mistakes, practicing errors, and you're trying to do undo years of uh, students struggling with difficulties and having their un- self-esteem constantly undermined. Um, but beyond the actual process of intervention, there's also the wider way in which school systems work. And what we're trying to do is say to teachers, if you teach using language, and I can't think of any teachers who don't, then you need to be able to be really good at understanding language and using language and helping your your students to access that language. And that inevitably means that sooner or later, and almost invariably sooner, you're going to be running into those students who have trouble with reading. You need to understand that that is not because they're stupid, it's not because they're dumb or they lack Mm -hmm. ability, it's because they need the teaching adjusted to help them get through that barrier. And, you know, it is, you know, often teachers thinking that, um, you know, poor reading, um, that that the child must, um, you know, have low intelligence. And one thing that with this particular boy, he was so bright. And, you know, in the program, always comprehension questions. And the comprehension questions he would get just straight away, inferential questions, he'd have the answer, you know, um, right there. Um, so there was nothing wrong with his intelligence. It was just he had difficulty reading. Reading. Yeah, that's a good point. And I am what you alluded to, and in, in you know the story is that there there were some you know behavior uh, behaviors that went along with the the reading achievement. Like there were correlations between that, and especially for this particular student. But what I heard James say earlier, too, is that it's really important to keep students alerted to their progress and and keep them in the loop about that, like regularly. Um, Because I think when we talk about secondary students, we are mostly talking like we'd love to, to say that there is a firm, you know, tier one program to support secondary students reading. Um, But sometimes there's not. And so then sometimes we're, we're talking about that intervention time. And um, I, I'd love to hear different ways that maybe you could recommend to teachers out there, if you feel comfortable, with keeping students alerted to their progress. Um, what would that look like? Oh, certainly with the Thinking Reading Program, um, we graph the children's um, results. So um, <clears throat> as they read, uh, as they complete each level, um, you know, we uh, you know record their results, and w- one thing that we would always do is um, when we have a new student come in, I'd take them over and show them the wall where we had all the graphs, and I'd be able to show them, look, with all of these students, this line here is their reading age, this line here is their chronological age, and you can see at the beginning the gap. And all of these children, there's a big gap. But can you see how quickly that gap um, closes? And if it happens for every child who comes here, why would you be any different? Do you know? And that's the first time of, you know, of giving them some hope, you know, if you're showing them concrete evidence. And, you know, so as I, as I said, once they start in the program, that's what we do. Each time they complete a level, 
And they go through the levels very quickly as well. You know, every every two to three weeks they're going up they're going up a level. And to be able to record that and update their graph overnight. So when they come into the next lesson, there it is on display. And I think the other thing about the way that um, Diane's designed the thinking reading lesson is that there are just a huge number of opportunities for giving students positive feedback. It's a 30-minute one-to-one lesson, but in that time, there are at least 300 opportunities to say to the student, good, well done, great, and so on. And at the end, of every, every two or three minutes, you move to another step in the lesson. And before you do, you give them feedback on how they just did. Well done. You got 15 out of 15 there. That's great. Of those five words, you got 70% for this word, 90% for these two words, and 100% for these three words. Uh, for, um, you know, you read at 121 words a minute and no errors. Fantastic work. And so the whole way through that very brisk lesson, they're getting feedback. But notice that the feedback is not, I think you're wonderful, or I'm, I really sympathize with you. The feedback is, this is what you just did. Well done. This is what you just did. Well done. It's concrete. It's specific. The praise is contingent on the student doing the right thing and then telling them, yes, you did the right thing. Yeah. Can I ask, um, one, one of the things that stuck out to me in chapter one um, was Number three of the reasons that every teacher, why every teacher needs to know about reading was like, basically, I'm summing it up, but, um, you know, teachers get a little nervous when when students don't know how to read. And, and instead of like, tackling it head on, they find ways to kind of let kids get around reading, right? And I've seen this, I probably have done it. I'm not, I tried not to, but, you know, I'd Let's play an audiobook, right? And we'll just keep it moving so we can talk like like Diane said, right? Like they can talk about the book, they have the comprehension, they you know, they're they're right there, but we like skipped past the <laughs> the hard stuff um, that they still needed help with. What what are the things that these students who are coming into secondary school, what do they need practice with that they that we often Ah. try not to, not to okay. practice yeah. in secondary schools. <laughs> yeah, I'm wondering if it might be uh, <laughs> when you all said why you wrote this book, Diane, you said uh, things like effective practices such as direct instruction, precision, precision teaching, and applied behavior analysis. I'm not sure if those are the components because <laughs> um, we haven't talked about it yet. So <laughs> I'm curious too. <laughs> yeah, um, well, I, th- I think one thing that's really important is for children at secondary school who are reading two to three years um, behind their chronological age, but the issues can't really be addressed in the classroom situation. They, uh, each child comes with a different learning history. They have different gaps in their learning, and that is why it's really important to, um, to teach them one-on-one. And it's important that the children, are, um, the whole cohort is assessed because we don't want anybody to fall through the gaps. And um, because some children are very, very good at masking um, their um, a lack of reading skills. So, you know, that, that's absolutely the first, the first thing. When it comes to actual intervention, it's really important to actually uh, 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 to drill down and find out what the specific needs are for each individual child. 
because we don't want to waste any time teaching something that the um, student already knows. And that's what tends to happen in a, um, or, you know, understandably, um, in a group intervention. Some children are going to be um, taught things that they already know. So one thing we're really hot on with thinking reading is we children, we don't want children actually to be out of class for any longer than is um, absolutely necessary. So that's why we actually need to target the lesson so that we're only teaching them what they need to know. So we're very strong on assessment, um, you know, doing survey level assessment, you know, to, um, to make sure that we target the right children so that uh, they're able to be um, allocated to the right intervention. You know, is it a problem with decoding? Is it a problem with comprehension? Is it a problem with both? And until you do thorough assessment, um, you can't know that. And then as far as what is going to be taught, um, all, uh, all children will have some knowledge of phoneme, graphing, correspondences, but they will have gaps. And it's important that we know what those gaps are, so that's what we can target. And, you know, and the other thing is, you know, so um, teaching them so that they're accurate, 100, you know, 100% of the time, but then not just stopping there, but actually moving on and developing their fluency mm. so that those, um, so um, all of those skills are locked into their long-term memory so that they have automatic responses. And that, um, that fluency is, is incredibly important to students developing good comprehension because for two reasons. One is they're chewing up cognitive resources on decoding if they're slow. So we've got to get them to the point of automaticity so that, so you know, you and I, when we're reading, we're seeing the ideas, not the words, by and large. You know, we're not having to spend time figuring out what that word is. So Stanislas Dehaene, the um, French neuroscientist, his work suggests that fluent readers are able to decode um, words at 300 words a minute silently. Uh, and in, in point two of a second, I've uh, looked at the the sequence of letters, related that to a sequence of sounds, related that to words in my word bank, related that to lexical aspects of memory, and then related that back into the context of what I'm reading. Point two of a second. That's what I mean by automaticity. It's going in faster than conscious thought, which is why, for example, if you're on the subway and there are signs on the, on the wall or the, you're a child reading a breakfast packet, you're reading before you know you've read, and advertisers rely on that very thing. Now, if you're a slow reader and you're having to devote five times more cognitive resources to working out a, the word so that you can read it in uh, a word a second, uh, that's a huge chunk of resource that's no longer available to process meaning and comprehension. So getting students up to fluency is really important, and then getting them to apply that to reading connected prose so that they actually then put all those practice skills to work. I think you talk about the two parts of the lesson as being a bit like a music lesson, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the first part is um, equivalent to learning scales. So, you know, when a, a child has a music lesson, they're not just playing pieces all the time. You know, they've got to master their scales first. So that's um, what we do in the first uh, part of the lesson is, so they're learning 
that um, those phoneme graphing correspondence items um, to automaticity. Yeah. And then in the second part of the lesson, it's like playing piece. Yeah. And that's when they um, can use those skills to read um, a piece that is, you know, graded according to their um, according to their level. Uh, and and uh, uh, so that's that where they're practicing that automaticity. Oh, yeah. sorry. <laughs> that's oh, where they're yeah. practicing, right? That automaticity. Generalizing it, yeah. yeah. Generalizing it to connected prose. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I'm I'm not much of a musician, but it really that really sticks. Of like, you know. When I, when I did take music lessons, you know, there is a difference, though, between when you're just, like, starting to practice and knowing what each note is and versus when you, like, you, you've memorized a, a, the song and you can just kind of play it by feeling it. I've never, I don't think I've ever reached that point in music, <laughs> but, I, but I do know what that feels like when reading. <laughs> what, I, what, what strikes me about that analogy, too, is how... I, you know, I remember how excited, and again, I'm no, I was no musician, same Melissa, but I remember being a kid and, and being very excited to, you know, learn the, the, what am I, learn the scales, right. And, and become a little bit more automatic with them. But the real thrilling part was when you got to play the piece and you got to practice and you got to hear yourself doing something that you worked at to, and putting it all together. And so I imagine that that's giving students a big boost as they're, you know, if you, they never get the, to the part where they practice and, and feel that confidence, like that to me is what's striking, especially about secondary readers. I mean, all readers, um, but about secondary readers. And when to like taking that back to your book, the five strands of reading we talk about them a lot on this podcast, phonemic awareness, phonics, fluency, vocabulary, and, and uh, comprehension. But, you know, you all had made uh, instructional recommendations for older readers that slightly differ from, from those and, you know, kind of put them into five general areas, uh, word study, fluency, vocabulary, comprehension, and motivation. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about about that because that's very intriguing to me. I think that motivation part is coming from where students are playing the piece. And maybe I might be making too many uh, inferences here, but <laughs> I'd love to hear your thoughts on those. We did talk about the beginning of the lesson and also why you put the article, the reading at the end. Yeah. Yeah, so um, certainly in part A of the lesson, when you know it's um, learning those skills to automaticity, the very first um, section of that part um, is uh, uh, looking again at prior learning. So you, we know that they're going to have success because they've already learned it. You know, so we're we're just we're just um, checking on that. So that's really important that they um, you know start off the lesson having some success. So we never start the lesson with um, new learning. And um, and each step uh, in the uh, program, it's just out of reach. Do you know? It's not so difficult that um, they're going to be really struggling, but it's not so easy that they're not going to make any progress. And that calibration is incredibly important. Um, so, and as James was saying before, right throughout that stage of the lesson, there are so many opportunities to actually praise them mm. contingently for the success that they're making. 
because that's the way the program is designed. Hmm. And, um, of course, they're most excited about actually reading a book. Hmm. So that's why we have that at the you know the second part of the lesson. So everything builds up to that to actually you know actually reading a, a book, and um, and they've already learned all of the skills that they need to be able to apply for that particular book. So with each of the texts that the children read, I mean I've gone through and I've analysed them for um, teaching points. Any um, any uh, tricky phoneme grapheme correspondences and so on. But because we do such careful um, assessment before the child starts, we know which ones to target and we don't bother teaching any that they already know. So there's, they're set up for success. Yeah. There's no way that they can't succeed. <laughs> and, in fact, the only way that they won't succeed is if the tutor it's not showing fidelity of delivery. So that's why we are really, really hot on that. I mean, I, I could tell you some, some stories. Um, certainly at the end of our training, we go in and um, we observe um, tutors teaching children. And I can remember in the early days going in and uh, this um, tutor started teaching at point three. And, and I, I actually stopped her and I said, Excuse me, can you tell me why you're starting here? Oh, I like to start with that. And, you know, she hadn't understood there was a reason why we start with, um, you know, with prior learning. So, yeah, fidelity of delivery is incredibly important. We agree. <laughs> but it's important to, to keep the fidelity to um, what you're doing. And I, I think sometimes it's what you just said strikes a chord with me. To understand the why is so important in being able to execute with fidelity and, and with confidence because, you know, I might be teaching and thinking, oh, I'm just going to start with the new stuff. But when I understand why we're going back and we're starting with something that students feel confident with, it's a quick review from, you know, from before of, of things that they know um, and that they can like quickly refresh and feel that boost of motivation and and engagement and energy, um, and then move forward into the just out of reach stuff. You know, that, that feels really good. And that's something also that when I was a coach, um, I, I often had to re remind myself of just like you did, Diane, like, you know, here's the why behind why we're doing it in this way. And here's why it's important to, to stay with the fidelity of what's happening in this intervention space or, or in this lesson space. I have a quick question about the motivation. If we, I'm wondering if we could dig in a little more to the motivation because some things I hear a lot with secondary students are, especially when they need um, some remediation, is one that, well, they'll think that's just like babyish, right? Or that's what, you know, they'll, they, they won't take to this because they feel like they should have learned it, right? And so I'm not motivated to want to, to do this with you because I've already, I this is what I should have learned in first grade, <laughs> but now here I am in eighth grade. Um, I don't want to, I don't want to do that again because I, I should have done that when I was young. Um, so there's that sense. And then I also hear teachers who say, you know, if you just, if you just find the right book for them, that's all they need, right? If they just, you just got to find that right book and then 
all the pieces will just fall in place. <laughs> and and I, I hear a little bit of, of, you know, Diane talking about that, right? Like you had to get in the door with a soccer or football. I had yeah. switched it to soccer in my head. <laughs> um, you know, you had to get in the door there, but I don't know that that's the whole answer either. So just wondering, I, I kind of put two different motivation things out there, but wondering if you guys could address that. Yeah. So um, I agree with you. Um, the, um, the issue of um, the material being age appropriate is very important. So selecting reading material for us has been a really big um, priority. Uh, and uh, it's really important that children are presented with material that is age appropriate mm-hmm. in terms of subject matter um, and the kind of the story arc and the characters that they see reflected in there and so on. Um, but then that has to be combined with accessibility. And so part of what we're doing in the lesson really is scaffolding that student to be able to access that text, but in such a way that they know what they've learned and we don't have to go back and reteach it because they've learned it so well straight away. And that's why Diane's um, designed the lesson in such small steps so that, as Engelman said, you can induce mastery in just a few minutes before you move on to the next step. Now, that uh, knowing that you've achieved mastery of something in such a short time is actually really helpful for motivation because uh, learning, knowing that you've learned something is one of the most intrinsically reinforcing things out there. Um, And if students are constantly having it pointed out during the lesson that they've just learned something successfully, that very, very rapidly um, builds their motivation. Um, I don't know if you wanted to add to that. Yeah, you know, so the idea of just finding them the right book, um, I find it quite irritating, really, because um, it's it's success builds motivation, and in some ways, finding the right, you know, the so-called right book that that's all it needs, um, you know, to be motivating is actually, you know, having it the wrong way round. You know, we need to um, make sure that uh, the student is in a program where they're making success and that they're making success early on. Mm. You know, that is so important. I can, um, I remember um, one um, girl, <coughs> excuse me, um, James actually um, taught her when she was in, in year seven. Anyway, so she was in, must have been about year nine, year 10, and she was bright, vivacious. And um, she came into the literacy centre for um, her first lesson, and she was so stroppy. There was no way that um, she wanted to be there. And um, the learning support assistant, you know, who was teaching her uh, found it really, really difficult. So uh, for her next um, lesson, I've gone and um, seen her tutor teacher, and um, I decided that um, I would teach her. and. in that first lesson, she made progress. Nothing to do with my teaching. It's just the design of the program, you know, it's designed for success. And, you know, high school students, they're not stupid. They know when they're in a program that's wasting their time. Mm. They know when they're making progress. And, you know, by the end of that lesson, you know, this girl, she had bought in. And it wasn't very long 
before. I mean, I don't know whether you have the same thing um, in the States, but, you know, we have uh, for some children, they call it, call it a reader-writer. So if they're having exams, they will have, you know, somebody who will, you know, read the text for them and actually and write down their answers. And, you know, I can remember this girl saying, you know, they say that I need a reader-writer. I'm going to show them. And she did. You know, it didn't take her very long at all before she was reading at her chronological age. And another thing that we would get them, um, the children to do um, once they were reading at their chronological age would ha- have a photo, uh, uh, print out their um, graph in um, gold paper, you know, as in, you know, celebrating, you know, really important, and um, ask them about what it meant doing the program. And I can remember her saying, I now feel confident to read aloud in class. Now, if you'd met this girl, you would never have thought that she had any problem with confidence, but it was bravado. Mm. It was bravado, you know? Yeah. Uh, If I could add to that little anecdote, actually, um, one of the things that happened afterwards was more than one teacher, two or three teachers, came back and said, what have you done with, you know, this this young woman? She's so different. Mm. And and you could actually see it in the photos. I mean, I knew what she was like because I'd been her teacher. Um, and she was quite truculent. And uh, she became much more relaxed, wasn't she? She she had a certain elegance about her. Um, she was friendly. She was engaging. And one of the teachers said she's always volunteering to read in class. You know? And I think... Um, that kind of brings it back. There has to be a bridge between what we do in the intervention and what happens in the classroom. Teachers need to understand the journey that child has been on and what they've achieved. So communicating back to those teachers, you know, this child has made five years' progress in their reading. Now, in your class, what you need to know is, you know, keep building their knowledge, keep working on their comprehension skills. They can decode that stuff now but you've got to scaffold them into the knowledge because that's what they don't have. They've missed out on that, and you're the subject teacher. You need to do that. But. I also think it's really important um, in an intervention to celebrate success, mm-hmm. and not just within you know the literacy centre, but in the wider school. So I always had an open door policy, and that you know any teacher of um, one of the students who was being taught in the literacy centre. Any teacher could come in at any time and watch a lesson. Yeah. Um, if, if, I, if you don't mind, I'll just tell another quick story about celebrating success that I heard uh, last week yep. uh, from one of the schools we're working with. Uh, and the head teacher, um, when a student graduates from Thinking Reading, they're sent to the head teacher and uh, he, says, he says to them, do you have your phone there? Call your mum or call, you know, call home. And so the student rings home, and uh, when the parent answers, he says, pass the phone. And he says, oh, oh hello, um, Mr. So-and-so, you know, this is, this is the principal, uh, and um, I've, I've got your child in my office. And you can, you know, the parent gives this kind of indrawn breath of, oh, no, what now? And then he says, and I just wanted to let you know that they've graduated from thinking reading. They, they're reading at their chronological age, They've made five, seven years reading progress, and uh, we're all just so proud of them. And, of course, the parents are in bits. The child is glowing. 
One day he mm. did it while one of his deputies was there after a hard day. She started crying in the corner, you know, and it's, it just makes it into, um, it makes it more real for people and it, that makes it more permanent. And it's very, very important that everybody shares that change narrative about that child and their future. Yeah. Like that's real motivation. <laughs> that's more motivation than a candy jar, you know? <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. yeah. And, and to be to be just on that point, no food. No food. No, no primary reinforcers, no food <laughs> like that. Totally it, it's totally inappropriate. Stickers, no stickers. Totally unnecessary. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, all the things I'm hearing you say are very intrinsic and, you know, compliments, give them, but compliments connected to progress, very specific, you know, and, you know, I saw that last time, you know, you could decode maybe 27%. Now you've increased it to 52% um, or whatever it might be, but I'm hearing you both say very intrinsic and specific uh, praise. And the thing you just shared, James, is so simple. And it is something that will de- would definitely impact students as they uh, go on their reading yeah. journeys. So that I love that. That's really cool. And especially secondary students. Like, that's the stuff that matters to them, right? Not not like I got a, a Twix or something. <laughs> yeah. Can I just add something? I have, um, one, oh, yeah. Please do. Uh, on, on demotivation. But we spend, a, we do it. We can often do things in school that are actually demotivating for students. We don't intend it to be, but we're not paying attention to the effect on the student. So, for instance, lavish praise for doing not very much is actually teaching the student that we have low expectations of them. Um, mm-hmm. uh, very gushy or inauthentic praise is teaching the child that we're kind of faking it and we don't really believe in them. And if we're not challenging them, there is nothing to actually praise. You know, that they need to be set an achievable challenge and the praise comes when they've attempted it, at least attempted it seriously. They don't have to succeed first time, but they have to give it a serious attempt. And that's when the praise comes. Not just, you know, so well done that you've, you know, that you've come here and sat down and and you're being nice to me. Um, None of that is really worth praising those are just very basic expectations. So uh, we often do things that are demotivating for students. That's aside from the things like setting them inappropriately easy or inappropriately difficult work, you know, which is obviously going to be demotivating, or um, humiliating them or embarrassing them in front of the class. I mean, I'm assuming that our listeners um, are already well or keenly aware that of those kinds of practices being totally inappropriate. And the other thing too that um, is really important not to do is not to, you know, uh, preface an activity in a, in, mm. a, in a lesson by saying, "Now I know you find um, this really difficult," or because of mm. your dyslexia or whatever. So, do you, do you know? Because everything is achievable in the lesson. There is absolutely no reason to um, allude to any difficulty. No. Yeah, I'm actually wondering, um, I know you have lots of uh, footnotes in your book and extensive references, so I'm going to scout through myself, but I thought, you know, since we're on here, I'll ask. The undergird to all of this seems that, you know, students 
are motivated by challenging things that are not out of reach challenging, mm-hmm. but that are like yeah. next step challenging. And I'm, I'm thinking about this both in education, in, um, you know, in sports, in, in every aspect, in music, in every aspect of, of learning something. And, and I would even just broaden that to like people in general, not just kids. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm wondering if, even if you can't think of it right now, maybe after this, or if you'd like to comment on it, um, you know, maybe you could point us in the direction of some research about that so that we can link it. Um, or if you have any thoughts about what I, I just shared, cause it seems, seems like it's that it's just continuous motivation cycle is what we're really talking about is like an authentic motivation cycle, right? Like once I get to the next step, then I go again, I'm reaching for the next thing and I'm reaching for the next thing, right? I don't just stop learning or growing, um, as a, as a person. Yeah. And, and so what we're talking about there is, you know, a virtuous circle that, you know, things start moving in a positive direction and we just, all we have to do is keep pushing it in that positive direction and that circle will keep building and building and building. So the, um, the learning, um, and or success builds motivation. The motivation improves their engagement and commitment, which means that their learning is more likely to be successful which then is more motivating for them, and so it builds. Uh, and you're right, it's the same for um, for everybody. You know, it's a human thing. It's not just kids who have reading problems. It's just taking one of the, what, you know, some people call the laws of learning and, and applying it to that situation. So um, all of us hate doing things that we're bad at or that we keep failing at. Uh, and all of us like doing things when we feel we're learning and making progress. I mean, it's like that with learning a language. If you feel like you're getting somewhere, you want to do it more. If you feel like that was embarrassing or humiliating, um, you do it less. I speak as someone who sometimes does the latter. But, um, sorry, um, in terms of research, I think that um, a really uh, simple place to start is uh, look at the work of Siegfried Engelman. Uh, and, and a really accessible book about that is called Clear Teaching by Shepard Barbash. It was printed in 2012. And uh, it's just a really nice summary of Engelman's work. There are a couple of fantastic interviews with him uh, on the Children of the Code website. Uh, and uh, there are both video clips and transcripts of that interview. And it's just full of nuggets of gold. Uh, Engelman is famous for being able to motivate students with gravel. <laughs> he went to a school and said, because people were saying you know, they couldn't learn, and he said, give me your the students, these students who aren't making any progress. And there were six of them. They said they're impossible to motivate. So he got them out in the car parking lot, and he had them competing for a handful of gravel. And they were totally motivated <laughs> because he knew how to turn this into a game that they would find motivating and um, where they would feel like they were being successful. So I think Engelman's a good place to start. Um, and then um, if you want to look at the effects of demotivation, Keith Stanovich has written extensively about the effects of re- cumulative effects of reading problems. He's got a paper about Matthew effects in reading. Uh, I think it's from quite a while ago now, but that's still true. Uh, and he talks about how... Um, uh, there are then there are these consequential problems. They are academic, they are uh, cognitive, they are behavioural, they are motivational. 
So there's a couple of points. That's great. Thank you. That's really helpful. Before we well, run we'll out of time, out of time. I just I want to ask this question before before we uh, don't have time for you guys because I I know that like the you know filling in those gaps of the phonics decoding even fluency can be really quick and those those are I think where the motivation comes quickly but you just mentioned the Matthew effect and you mentioned this earlier but for those students who for all these years maybe weren't getting the vocabulary and the background knowledge mm. because they were you know, they were struggling readers, so they weren't reading as much because it wasn't something that they liked to do. Um, what, what do you have any tips for teachers or parents or anyone for like, what, how do you also help in that realm of, you know, if, if you're behind with vocabulary and comprehension, those are things that I mean, my three year old is I'm working on now, right, building his knowledge of the world and building his vocabulary, um, yeah. that will help him when he gets to school one day. So how, how do you help uh, older students who might be behind in those areas? Okay, well, I'll comment on um, with an intervention, but um, James is the experienced um, English teacher. So he's um, best placed to comment um, within the classroom. Um, but I think it's important for uh, students in intervention that the reading material that they're given is able to um, uh, develop their background knowledge, you know, develop their vocabulary. So that's um, choosing, you know, quality material. Hmm. And you, you use a, a mixture of fiction and non-fiction, don't Absolutely, you? fiction and non-fiction, yeah. 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 So, so that students are, are regularly learning stuff, but they're also being required to make inferences and they're constantly being confronted with unfamiliar vocabulary. Not so much they can't deal with it, but enough to get them confident. And also you give them really explicit word study. Don't yeah, you? definitely um, definitely word study. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So actually working out And how, I think that's another we... reason. Yeah, I was just going to say, I think that's another reason not to just go with books that are super motivating, right? Because if the student only wants to read about football... <laughs> You're 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 very limited in the the vocabulary and the knowledge that they'll they'll be building. Yeah. And while I think it's important that children do choose what they read to to a certain extent, as teachers we actually do need to be in control of that, and we need to take them out of their comfort zone. So you know some choice, but um, we 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 step in and. Um, and um, you know, maybe give them a selection. You, you have to choose between, you know, one of these. Yeah. Um, and I think on the wider issue of uh, building vocabulary and background knowledge or cultural capital, um, we when we work with schools, we always work with them on a whole school strategy that extends into the classroom. It's not just about the intervention. So that when students move out of the intervention, classroom practices already support challenging reading material in every lesson, um, uh, really efficient ways to teach vocabulary so you can teach a lot of it quickly and giving them challenging reading material with appropriate scaffolding. So, you know, what happens in the classroom has to harmonise with what happens in an intervention. You can't just do one or the other. So it might be uh, linking back to that virtuous cycle or virtuous Mm. circle you said earlier, you mentioned earlier. (laughs) Yeah, that's really smart. Well, we are, we're coming to a close and I'm not sure that we have time to do a, a piece of advice. Do you, do you have another moment to, sh- to share? I don't want to take up too much of your time or are you on to your next venture? 
Um, the only, as far as advice, uh, the one thing that I would say that they need, each school needs to have um, a systematic screening program. Yep. Absolutely critical that referrals should not be made just, um, you know, uh, by teachers, but it's in response to systematic screening. And I would just add, um, leaders are the ones who most need to be boned up about this stuff. It keeps being devolved to people lower down. Leaders need to take responsibility for getting this sorted out because it's so crucial to student success. Absolutely. These, I mean, these children yeah, we can agree more. are the best teachers, the most experienced teachers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. a good point too. We all, we know that doesn't often, so not often, sometimes that doesn't happen. So that's a great point to make too. Absolutely. And we need to make sure those teachers have the best materials in their hands, the right assessments, <laughs> the right, you know, the right training, everything um, that, that you guys have been talking about. So thank you all so much for chatting about your book today. We appreciate it. Such an important topic and one that I know Lori and I both are passionate about with having taught in secondary schools. <laughs> yeah, and I'm yeah. wondering, I know that uh, the, the book is being re-released with, or maybe it has been already with a new cover. Um, yes. When, when yes. is that going to happen or when did that happen? We have, we have the, uh, the old cover, which we is do. also lovely. <laughs> <laughs> I think it has happened. Yeah. If you, on, on Amazon, it has happened. It has okay. Cover. Yeah. Mm. So, uh, good. So we will link that. And um, again, the book is Thinking Reading, What Every Secondary Teacher Needs to Know About Reading. But I would almost say, I mean, I think this is great for any teacher. I, I You know, even Agreed. parents who are wondering, <laughs> you know, even older student, you're wondering, what what do I do? How do I help? Um, this yeah. is like a great additional, you know, knowledge building piece for you. Yeah. And easy yeah. to read and access. So it's not overwhelming, which is Always appreciated. Bite <laughs> size chunks. That's thank you end. both so much for giving us your time. Thank and thank you. you for having us on. Yeah. Thank you for having Absolutely. us. Lovely to talk to you again. Thanks for listening, literacy lovers. We release a new podcast episode every Friday and share more resources in a newsletter on Tuesday. Sign up for our newsletter at literacypodcast.com. Each week, you'll receive important information, resources, and connected content. We're excited to create a space for community discussion about our podcast. We want to connect with our listeners and support you in answering your questions. But we also realize there are a lot of other educators out there who have great advice and experience too. Let's keep learning together in our Melissa and Lori Love Literacy podcast Facebook group, and be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter. If the content in this episode helped you, share with a fellow educator and teacher friend. Our Literacy Lover community welcomes educators at every stage of their learning journey. We're so glad you're here to learn with us.